The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yeah, Matthew 28, go ahead and get there if you got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the ends of the rows. Matthew 28 is where we're going to be hanging out uh, again, like just like we were last week. Uh, hey, a couple uh, notes real quick before we kind of dive into what we're talking about tonight, uh, just to encourage you on a couple of different things, just from feedback that we've been getting on the series and just some, some helpful questions and comments and all of that. Uh, two things. One, uh, I'll just encourage you, I know fall, particularly for those of us in our 20s and 30s, can be sometimes busier than the summer. Uh, Friends are getting married, we're going out of town to football games, things like that. This series really builds on itself quite a bit, and there's a lot of times we're referencing to other things we've said or talking about, all of that. And so let me just encourage you, every week, uh, Monday morning, the sermon is online, both in video and audio, and so I just want to encourage you to check that out, take the 35 minutes, play it on double speed if you dare with how fast I talk, and just try to keep up with us as much as possible, because we're going to be referencing around and back and things like that. Second thing is, uh, don't be overwhelmed. I know that with each week, we are saying some pretty um, difficult things to step into. And our expectation is not as a church that we would preach one sermon on how to preach the gospel, and then suddenly we're all expert evangelists. Like, that's not the goal. That's not how life and reality works. And so let me just encourage you by reminding you, we are laying a foundation as a church that we want to step into for years and years and years to come. And so these are just practices we want to introduce and kind of put before you that you might consider over the long haul of following Jesus what it looks like to implement these in various ways in your life. So if you're like, man, we just preached on this. Now we're doing this. Next week it's healing. Next week, the week after that, it's casting out demons. Like what is going on? That's okay. Let's just take a collective breath together and rest in the grace of Jesus, right? As we're stepping into these practices as a church family. Let me pray for us one more time. And then we're going to dive right into Matthew 28. Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful for you. And all of this is for and because of and about you. And so I pray that you would do what you always do when your word is opened, God, that you would root it in our hearts. You would wake up our minds. You would tear down the walls of deception and lies and rebellion that want to creep in always because of sin and our flesh and our enemy. Help us to hear you. We love you. Pray like things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So we said last week that this is the charge from Jesus right before he leaves his disciples to go to the right hand of God. It's historically been called by Christians as the great commission. Go make disciples. Go lead people into a life of following Jesus. And then we said last week, Jesus says in particular, that means two things. First is this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you remember from last week, baptism is an outward expression, immersion under the water, going under the water and back up as an expression of an internal spiritual reality, namely new life or salvation in Christ. And so what Jesus has in mind in this first part is go preach the gospel, go lead people into salvation, go tell them what it means to put their faith in Jesus. But there's a second part of the charge and what we're going to examine tonight, and that comes in verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus says there's two parts to this whole making disciples thing. Number one, you preach the gospel, you lead people to salvation in Christ, and then you show them how to live. And that's our practice for tonight, what we're calling teaching the way teaching the way. What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to make disciples by teaching others how to follow Jesus? That you and I would, according to the commands and teachings of Jesus, embrace our responsibility to help other Christians grow in their spiritual formation. That's where we're headed tonight. What does it look like for you as a Christian to help others be Christian, live as followers of Jesus? Now, before we kind of get to the teaching part and, and what that looks like to make disciples in that way. I first want to spend a few minutes examining what it is that Jesus tells us we are to teach. Now specifically, note, Jesus says, make disciples, teaching them first to observe, or as other translations put it, obey all that I have commanded you. All right, so the first thing we need to see is that this is a call to obedience. This is not a call simply to know the commands of Jesus. It's not, a, it's not a invitation or command to simply consider if you want to follow the commands of Jesus. He says, teach them to obey. And this is a theme that we've come back to quite a bit as a church. Even at the beginning of this series, all of week one was about the Christian life not simply being one of idea or belief or desire, but of practice. That to follow Jesus means you actually learn to live as his apprentice or disciple, following in his ways, obeying his commands. Another way to say it, as we said it in week one, is that the Bible doesn't have a category for people that are only converts. It says disciples. What we mean by that is this, salvation unequivocally is free. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot make yourself right with God. There is nothing you can do. There is no right thing you can say. There is no way for you on your own to make yourself right with God. Salvation is a free gift from him to you. Ephesians 2 says, apart from Christ, before you put your faith in Jesus, you're dead. And here's the thing about dead people. They do not make themselves alive. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our sins, which means what? We need someone to come 
and to make us alive. And that's what Christ has done. He comes into our lives, wakes us up. The language of the scriptures is makes us a new creation, takes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, forgives us, washes us clean, makes us right with God, calls us his own, gives us an inheritance as sons and daughters of God. That is free only by faith alone in Christ alone, period. And we'll preach that until we die. But, to use the language of theologian Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So get this, while we can't live our way into a relationship with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus does necessitate that we change how we live. See the order? We do not live our way into the kingdom of God, but being a part of the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Christ then changes how we live in light of that reality. If you're a true follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, that will change how you live. And don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's word for it, right? This is him in John 14, 21. He says this, whoever has my commandments and what? Keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he, will be, he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus says, he who keeps my command, he it is who has real faith in me. If you want to know who's actually following me, if you want to know who actually has love for me, it is the one who keeps my commands. So Jesus says, teach them to obey. And then the second thing we see is what we are to obey, and that is this, all that Jesus has commanded. Jesus says in verse 20, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. Not some of what Jesus has commanded, not our favorites or easiest of the commands, all of what Jesus has commanded. Which, if you start reading through the Gospels, is quite the list. I want to give you just real briefly a snapshot of some of Jesus' commands. This is just from the Gospel of Matthew. Not even all four Gospels, just from Matthew alone. Here's a few of the commands of Jesus. Repent and believe. Matthew 4, 17. Rejoice when persecuted, 5, 12. Reconcile and forgive others. Do not lust. Do not retaliate. Love your enemies. Give to those in need. Lay up treasures in heaven. Do not be anxious. Seek God's kingdom first. That is 10 of the 50 to 70, depending on how you're counting and reading it, commands of Jesus in the scriptures. And there's nuance with each of these commands or specifications. And I would encourage you to take some time at some point in your life to dive deep into the commands of Jesus. But I think what is helpful for us tonight is to consider how Jesus summarizes his commands himself. During one of his kind of many question and answer sessions with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders at that time, Jesus is asked, hey, what are the greatest commands of God? Like you've given us 50 to 70 in your time on earth. God gave 613 in the Old Testament called the law to his people, the Israelites. They're spelled out in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so they're like, all right, God gave 613 in the law. You've given 50 to 70. That's a lot of commands. What do we need to follow? What do we need to do? Which ones should we emphasize over the other? others. This is what Jesus says in response, Matthew 22. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How can you summarize the 613 commands of God and 50 plus commands of Jesus? Jesus himself says they all hinge on these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of your being. 
your heart, your soul, your mind. And he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two most crucial commands, that is the way of Jesus, that we would more and more learn to be a people of love. Now, not a people who love in the world sense, not just a mutual affirmation because we like each other or see something in each other that we're fond of, not love in the sense of I'm just going to affirm everything about you and everything you want and everything you're going to be and vice versa. Love in the deepest sense of the scriptures, which is first and foremost a humble, self-sacrificing love for the good of someone else. That's what Jesus invites us into. That's the way of Christ. When Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, at the core, what he means is that we more and more would be a people who give up our lives for the sake of loving God and loving others. That's his invitation. And so in light of that, for us to make disciples, for us to teach others into that way means this. Making disciples means teaching other Christians to love God and to love others with the practices of their lives. That's what Jesus says when he invites us part two, preaching the gospel, number one, teaching to observe all that I've commanded. That's what he means, teaching other Christians to love God and to love others with the practices of their lives. Which brings us to where the rubber hits the road for us tonight. This responsibility to teach others to love God and love others with the practices of their lives falls on all of us who would claim the name of Christ. Let me say that again. This falls on all of us who would claim the name of Christ. Just like all of us who are Christians are sent into the world to preach the gospel. All of us who are Christians are sent to help other Christians follow Jesus more. Preaching the gospel is not simply a task for evangelists or missionaries, and in the same way, helping others follow Christ more is not simply a task for the pastor or the deacon or the leader. This is the work and calling of every Christian. All right, consider the words of the writer of Hebrews. This is what he says in Hebrews 10.24, written to the entire church of, uh, in the world in that time in Jerusalem. And he says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to what? Love and good works. The author of Hebrews writing to the entire church body says, let us together, you and me, every single one of us consider how to help one another love Jesus and each other more. So do me a favor right now. Look around the room. It's not like a hypothetical, like actually look at each other. Those to your side, those in front, those behind you. It's kind of awkward, but you can smile. Here's the deal. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a God-given responsibility to help the people you just looked at look more like Christ. You have a God-given command and responsibility to help the people around you look more like Jesus. That is what he's inviting us into. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. You disciple other Christians towards Jesus, even as they are discipling you. We help one another mutually love God and love others more. You have a role to play in this. You're not too young in age or in your relationship to Jesus. You're not too inept at your theological knowledge. You're not too green. You're not too broken. You're not too messed up. You're not too new into the life of our church. You have a responsibility and a calling to own the faith of the other people around you. Listen, you have this burden of responsibility from Jesus himself given to all who would claim Christ to make sure that not only you look more like Jesus in the years to come, but the people around you look more like Jesus in the years to come. Let me just push a little bit. This is 
Um, this is where it kind of gets a little tense and uncertain for us. If I can just challenge us for a minute. We have a really limited picture of discipleship within the church today. Extremely limited version. And typically, when we hear the word discipleship, what we think of is a more mature Christian sitting down with a less mature Christian, usually over coffee, sometimes over lunch, to help them figure out the problems that they have in their life. That's what we think of when we think of discipleship. We think a less mature Christian, a more mature Christian, the less mature Christian gets to ask a lot of questions of the more mature Christian to help them think about life. And this is often how I hear it from people within the life of our church. It sounds something like this. My biggest problem right now is that I simply don't have somebody pouring into me. Like, I just need somebody to pour into me. I just need somebody to, to pour, to speak. And if you're not familiar with that language, pouring into me is just Christian language for, like, mentor me in the faith. Like, I just need someone who's more mature than me, more Christ-like, to help me in my walk with Christ. And that's not a bad thing. Hear me on this. That is a good, helpful thing. Titus 2 gives categories for more mature Christians helping less mature Christians in their faith. I have been extremely helped currently and in the past by more mature Christians than me helping me along in my journey. But that is not the entire picture of discipleship. And I would argue not the primary picture of discipleship in the scriptures. Good thing, but not the primary way the scriptures talk about discipleship. In the scriptures, discipleship is not primarily an older Christian sitting down with a younger Christian to talk about life. In the scriptures, discipleship is primarily the mutually beneficial work of those within a community of faith as we love one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, discipline one another, pray for one another, and spur one another on towards love and good works. That is discipleship. This is Hebrews again, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Notice what he says. Take care, brothers, or brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice what he says, take care who? Not pastors, not elders, not deacons, not leaders. He's not like, hey, pastors, make sure that those people in the church are not falling away or getting hardened by sin. Who does he say to? Brothers and sisters, you guys keep watch over the souls of each other. Look around and make sure the other Christians alongside of you in discipleship are also not growing deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Help each other follow Jesus. And listen, I'm not trying to cut you off at the knees if you're like, right now I need somebody farther along to help me. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just trying to warn us collectively, particularly in a church that leans into 20 and 30 year olds, mostly in our church, that the temptation for us when we are following Jesus and we think about discipleship when we're in our 20s and 30s is only to look up and never to look across or down. You see that? The temptation to go, okay, discipleship is a good thing. Who's going to disciple me? Who's going to pour into me? Because I want to grow. And growth is a good goal. All of us should want to grow in our faith. But here's the conundrum, or rather, here's the, the interesting thing about the kingdom of God. And if, you, if you've stepped into this, you know this, that oftentimes it's those of us who are looking across and down asking who we can pour into and who we can disciple are often the ones who actually grow in the way we want to grow when we're looking up to see who will pour into us. Oftentimes, and you know this if you stepped into this, it is actually when we are trying to pour into and disciple others that God grows us and shapes us and sanctifies us the most. 
I love when somebody steps into leadership as our church and they're so excited and they're so pumped and they're new and they're like, I want to lead and I want to take ownership and I want to help. And they have all these ideas about how God is going to use them to grow other people. And I get so excited and I know, hey, you know what's really exciting that you don't know is about to happen to you is while you are looking to try to pour into others so that they will grow, God is going to do a work in you that you have no idea about because you're trying to pour your life out. And it happens every single time. They get six months into leadership, and I always talk, hey, how's it going? You're leading others, and they're like, God's doing this and this and this. But really, Tim, if I'm being honest, I had no idea that God was really doing one big sanctification project for me. That he was shaping me. And that he was growing me. And I thought I was signing up to lead to care for others. But really, God had another thing in plan, too, that he was going to shape me in the meantime. And here's what happens. You see, the American discipleship system is like this. It often asks, who can pour into me so I can grow? But the way of Jesus asks the opposite. Who can I pour into so that I can grow? That's the way of Jesus, pouring our lives out for the good of others. I love the way that Pastor Mark Dever puts it when he says this. He says, the Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. And discipling involves transmitting the knowledge of God and his word through every moment of life. Discipling lasts all week as members meet to talk and pray and encourage and assist one another in the fight for love and holiness. That's what it means to teach the way. In the day in, day out of life, we would help one another as we talk, pray, encourage, and assist in the fight for love and holiness. Now, here's the problem. Maybe you're like, yes, I'm on board, but you just notice some struggle in your heart. Or maybe you're like, I don't buy it. Like, I'm not about this. Here's why I would argue why that is. When you think about stepping into this mutual work of discipleship within the church, there are going to be two key and crucial barriers that are going to arise in this world around you and in your heart. Because here's what happens. When it comes to this form of mutual discipleship, the church has said you can't, and the world has said you shouldn't. When it comes to the Jesus way of discipleship, that you can actually benefit somebody's faith, even if you're brand new to this whole Jesus thing, the church has told you you can't, and the world has told you you shouldn't. Let's just talk about these for a few minutes before we land with some application. Ingrained within the church, and I don't even think just in the West, I think in my experience it's true in most of the world, there has been historically and today either an explicit or a functional divide between the clergy and the laity, or between the church leaders and the church goers. Now, from the church's inception at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, there has been designations of leadership. Good, godly leadership for the church is a gift from God. We see that in Ephesians 4. It's a necessary and a beautiful thing for the people of God to flourish. Every family needs leaders or a leader, including the family of God. But where it went wrong, and this is just a fun church fact history for you, beginning of the third century, this divide between leader and member began to reach unbiblical grounds. It became common thought within the church as a whole for about 1,200 years that the clergy, so think bishops, priests, pastors, elders were the only ones who could accurately read or interpret the Bible. And so they had this whole idea within the church that if you were a quote-unquote common person, a member of the church, that you shouldn't own a Bible or read a Bible or try to interpret the Bible because you're too dumb and you will be a heretic. That is what they thought. That is what they believed. So much so that John Wycliffe tries to translate the Bible into English so that normal, everyday Christians could read it in 1380, and he's condemned as a heretic. And then 200 years later, in 1536, William Tyndale does the same thing, and they burn him at the stake. 
They literally are like, no, these people, they cannot read the Bible. It's only for the clergy and the pastors and the bishops. They can read the Bible. Normal Christians, quote unquote, can't read the Bible. And so they literally burned a guy at the stake for trying to help Christians read the Bible. Now, obviously, in 2022, we have walked the vast majority of that back from such a strong position, but functionally, it has never left the Christian culture. Functionally, we have still bought into the lie that pastors, clergy, elders, deacons, they're the ones who can understand the scriptures, they're the ones who can teach people the Bible, they're the ones that can help people grow, and my job is just to come and consume. My job is just to come and learn. Now, it is certainly my job, Garrison's job, other leaders within our church's job to teach the scriptures, and part of your role as a member is to learn. But hear me on this. You have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. And so I don't care what church history has told you, and I don't care what you functionally have come to understand. You can and should help other Christians grow. You can do it. You, if you are a follower of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so the question should not be, okay, my pastor teaches people the way, and so my job is to bring people to church to hear my pastor teach people the way. That's not how it should be. It should be, our pastors help teach us the way, so I come to church, learn about the way, so I can help others also follow Jesus in the way. You see the difference? I have a beautiful example of this uh, in the life of our church. Some of our members uh, a little while ago had some uh, both Christian and non-Christian friends approach them, and they said, hey, uh, we just want to read the Bible together, and we want to learn the Bible, and we just kind of want to walk through it. We've never read it beginning to end. Would you help us? And they didn't say, yeah, let me go get Tim to start a Bible study. They said, no, we're going to do this. And so they owned it for themselves. And for months, they walked from Genesis all the way to Revelation through the scriptures, guiding their friends. And I loved it because I got to come alongside in very small ways. Occasionally, they would text me and be like, how would you interpret this passage? Or like, that's kind of weird in Hezekiah. What's going on over here? And I got to help them and encourage them and resource them. But in this beautiful way, they got to go, no, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me and I can help people grow. And it was so cool to see how God used them in incredible ways. But what was even cooler is from my position, I got to watch grow them as well. And God shaped them and molded them, even in the midst of them trying to help others. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us, right? It says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I love verse 16, how he ends it. He says, from whom, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When, notice, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do we grow as the people of God? When each part is working properly. When you're doing your role, role when I'm doing mine, when all of us are contributing. But not only has the church said you can't, the world has also said you shouldn't. Here's what I mean by that. We live very obviously in what I would call a you do you or live your truth culture. It's good for you. It's good for you. And who, I, who am I to step in and try to show you anything different? Uh, this was a shocking thing that I, I read this week uh, in studying for this sermon. Uh, Barna Group, which is like a research group that heavily researches uh, Christianity and evangelicals and what's going on in the church. They did this study a few years ago, and they found that just shy of 50%, right around 47% of millennial Christians said it was morally wrong to share the gospel with someone else. Not like I'm nervous to do it, not like a bad idea, that it was morally wrong to share the gospel with someone else. In addition to that, 40% of that same group, millennial Christians, agreed that if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. 
Now that has drastic implications for how we think about preaching the gospel and teaching the way, does it not? Because here's what happens. A necessary part of discipling someone else is at some point you might have to say, hey, I think you're off here. At some point, something is going to come up in their life or in yours where it's just going to be like, I see the way of Jesus and I see his commands and I see how you're living or thinking or believing or acting or loving, and they just don't seem to coalesce. And what happens is if we buy into the narrative of the world that says to point out anything that is wrong or off in someone else is judgment and violence and wrong, here's what we're going to do in that moment. Option one, say nothing. I just don't want to offend them. They're my friend. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to make them upset. Option two is I'm going to call my pastor and my community group leader and say, are you worried about this too? Can you talk to them? But that's not the invitation of Jesus. Look at the invitation of Jesus. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, what? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Or Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And everybody's like, yeah, that's why we don't say anything. But notice what Jesus says. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. So yeah, deal with your stuff. Come in humbly. But why? So then you will be able to take the speck. Or Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If anyone is caught in any transgression... Don't call the leader, you who are spiritual, you follower of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit within you, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A great example of this, and I ask for permission, so don't get nervous. Uh, from Lindsay's life, my wife's life, uh, early or in her life in high school, she did what a lot of uh, middle schoolers and high schools do, high schooler girls do, which is fought often with her mom. <laughs> her and her mom just didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. They had a lot of volatility. They just kind of butted heads a lot. Uh, I think today it's because they're very similar, and a lot of times what happens is when you put two similar people in a room, they tend to fight the most. Um, but they had just had some disagreements and a lot of arguments. And one day, her older sister, Landry, sat her down and said, hey, I just got to be honest with you, you're kind of a jerk to mom. Like, you're just sort of mean, and your mom loves you, and our mom loves you unconditionally, and cares for you, and provides for you, and she's a pretty darn good mom, and so I think you need to reevaluate what you're doing. And Lindsay says it was this light bulb moment in her life and in her relationship with her mom that the Lord used in an incredibly powerful way for her to repent and her to ask her mom's forgiveness and to change the dynamic of their relationship. Now, here's the deal. That doesn't happen, most likely, if Landry doesn't have the hard conversation. If she doesn't step in and, and put her neck on the line, say, I'm willing to risk our relationship as sisters for the sake of helping you grow as a human and as a daughter and as a follower of Jesus. If I'm not putting myself on the line, it doesn't lead into a trajectory of holiness for Lindsay to now her and her mom have a beautiful and flourishing and wonderful relationship years and years later. And that's what we're invited into as followers of Jesus. That we would not go, man, I'm really worried about this thing in their lives, and I really hope our church does like a sermon series one day so they can kind of like address it. <laughs> Hypothetically. The invitation is for all of us to step in and say, hey, I love you too much to not put my neck on the line for you. 
just love you too much. I care about your holiness too much. I care about your relationship to Jesus too much. And so that's the invitation from Christ to all of us as followers of Jesus to teach others the way, to help other Christians love God and love each other more. So here's where I want to kind of close as we, as we land. What might this look like in your everyday life, right? Like what might this look like if you step into really what we said even at the beginning of the year? You remember our vision for the year, right? Following Jesus together with grit, that part of what we want to do as a church is help each other grow this is not new. This is just rehash of that. What would it look like for you to step in to that? Let me give you a few examples, a few hypotheticals you might experience in your life. Number one, you have a couple in your community group and their marriage is just struggling. Like it's just hard and they're going through it like all of us do as sinners trying to figure out how to be married together. Here's the thing. Don't wait and hope, man, I hope our community group leader notices. I hope that we do something as a church to help them. Like I'm going to pray for them from afar. What would it look like for you to maybe step in? Hey, it feels like you guys are going through a hard time. Let's, let's do something together. I'm going to pray for you for sure, but what if we read a marriage book together? What if we did a study in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, or different scriptures on marriage together? What if we met together for dinner once a month, and we just asked each other hard questions about how our marriages are doing with Jesus? What would it look like for you to step in? I'll give you another example. That friend who for the past three years of friendship has consistently said, I'm really struggling to read my Bible. For three years, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I just don't have the time, I don't have the desire, what do I do? Maybe instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to pray for you, keep me updated. What would it look like for you to say, hey, enough is enough, I'm struggling too, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 7 a.m., we're going to meet at my house and we're going to read the scriptures together. That level of ownership. Like, that sounds like a lot. Yeah, change the hardware. That's what we're invited into. To say, man, I, it's worth it. And maybe not forever, for a month. Let's do a month. Maybe not three days, one day. Saturdays at noon. That seems easy. <laughs> but we're going to read the Bible together because I'm going to own your discipleship. I want you to look more like Jesus in three years, and I think that's how I'm also going to look more like Jesus in three years. What about that community group member who's new to the faith? They've just started checking out Jesus. They've just started exploring this whole church thing. Maybe not just stepping back and going, man, I really hope they get it. I really hope they pick up the ethos of what it means to follow Christ. I really hope they learn and grow as they're just kind of around. What would it look like you to say, hey, you're new to the faith. I'm going to help you grow. You ever read the Bible? Let's meet up once a week. We're going to help each other read the Bible. We're going to read John. I'm going to buy you a study Bible. I'm going to buy a study Bible. We're going to figure it out together. That's what it means to take ownership. That's what it means to help one another follow the way of Jesus. We've got uh, a practice guide this week that you're going to go through in your community groups. If you're not in a group, get in a group. If you're in a group, our guide this week is called Following Jesus Together. It's right on the nose with the title. And what it is, it's going to be a chart. And with that chart, each uh, there's going to be different portions of the chart. It's going to be what the community group member's name is, the specific area they want to grow this fall, and then two other, two other uh, columns. The first is how you can pray. What are specific ways you can pray for them and their discipleship to Jesus? And then the second one is tangible ways you can act. So maybe someone at group on Wednesday night is going to be like, man, I just really want to grow in patience this fall. Like, I really want to grow in my, in my patience with my spouse, with my friends, with my roommate, with my children, whatever it may be. And you're going to say, great, what's a tangible way we can pray for you? What's a tangible way we can help you? What's, let's read, let's do a study from the scriptures on patience. Let's read a book on patience. Let's get together and hold each other accountable. Whatever it may be, we just want to step into this practice together, helping each other follow Jesus more. It's as difficult and as simple as it sounds. Let's pray. 
God, we love you. God, we're grateful for Jesus. Lord, thank you that the reality of the gospel is true and that we don't earn our right standing with you based on how well we help other people follow you. That's not about that. That's not how we become a Christian. That's not how we're saved. But rather, you invite us because of faith and through faith to enter life with you. As we enter life with you, God, you invite us to do the very things that Jesus did. And to follow you and preach the gospel, to follow you and eating and drinking with those far from you, to follow you and praying for one another, and to follow you in all these incredible ways. And one specific way we want to follow you, Lord, is, in, is helping each other know you more. And we want to be a people that reorient our lives, not just around our discipleship to you, but others' discipleship to you. God, I pray as we consider all parts of our lives, our schedule, our resources, our energy, our concerns and cares, Lord, would you help us see, man, how can I help those around me grow? God, give us a burden for the discipleship of those in our community. God, give us a deep, deep burden for those around us and their walks with you. Help us change the rhythms of our lives such that we would sacrificially give of ourselves to help others love you and love each other more. And I pray you give us a spirit of receptiveness. And there can be a lie and a temptation to want to reject the discipleship of others. To want to say, well, you said that wrong. Or you don't know as much as me. Or you haven't gone through what I've gone through even experience what I've experienced. There's a way that we can reject others trying to be faithful to you by caring about our walks with you. And I pray against that, Lord. I pray against that pride in my own heart. I pray against that pride in our church. That you would humble us with a spirit of humility, a spirit of gratitude. That we would be eager for others to speak into our lives, no matter how painful or hard or wrongly put be eager to grow, eager to love you more and more. We love you. We need you. Would you root everything that is of you into our hearts and let everything I said that doesn't make any sense or is not about you fall away. We just want to be a people of you. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.